Hi everyone, my name is Christopher Bonheim and you're listening to the BIN podcast. Simply the podcast for those who want to learn from the very best in business, tech and entrepreneurship. Let's start the show. Alex Svanevik is a Norwegian entrepreneur and co-founder of the crypto platform Nansen. He began his career in AI and data science, working for several companies before diving into the crypto rabbit hole. In this episode, we discuss what made Alex more interested in Ethereum versus Bitcoin, how he wants to build the most important blockchain and research tool in crypto, securing funding from Andreessen Horowitz, and what Alex believes are the biggest opportunities going forward in the crypto industry. Let's start the episode. Quarter is the new way of doing company research. With Quarter, you get frictionless access to conference calls, investor presentations, transcripts, and earnings reports from markets all around the world straight to your pocket. Quarter's mission is to change the way people look at investor relations and create a completely new bridge between companies and stakeholders. Quarter is 100% free. They include companies from 15 markets today and plan to add more over time. They always prioritize requested companies which users can easily do in the app. Users can also leave reactions while listening to the conference calls to make their voice heard. So check out Quarter. Q-U-A-R-T-R. All opinions expressed by Christopher Vonheim or his guests on this podcast are only their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of BIN. You should not treat any opinion expressed by Christopher Vonheim as a specific reason to invest or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his opinion. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Okay, Alex, so how early did you find an interest in data? How young was you? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I, I, I think my mother likes to say that I have, I've always been interested in numbers and mathematics. Um, so I guess from a very young age, uh, but I think it was after high school, I got into um, my bachelor's program, which was a program in cognitive science. And the pitch was that we would have courses in artificial intelligence. And that was probably the thing that kind of pulled me into the world of like science and mathematics and so on. I did do, so I studied music in high school, which is a bit strange, but uh, I was doing mathematics on the side as well. So I did like the exams and stuff uh, on my own. Um, so yeah, I guess data and numbers and stuff like that has always been quite interesting to me. Yeah, and sort of the first industry you got really into looking at data and connecting the dots in the industry. Was it a specific industry or was it just like whatever data you find, you, you found an interest in? So I finished my master's in 2010. And literally the same day I handed in my dissertation, I walked down to, the, uh, to a lawyer's office to incorporate my first company. Uh, and so... You know, we were working with different industries there from like retail to engineering. We would basically build like AI systems and like analytic systems for different companies. It was more like a consulting model. And then, um, yeah, I started working in an actual consultancy later on uh, where I worked in like seafood, like we just talked about (laughs) offline here um and banking insurance uh luxury retail which is a pretty interesting industry uh so i think i think it was i was always attracted by the fact that you can use these same techniques in different areas so that's probably how 
Um, that's the thing that I liked about, I think, data and analytics, that it's relevant in any industry. Of course, some more than others, but it's kind of cool to have a tool set that can be used in so many different industries. You quite early also decided to, to go abroad from Norway. Can you give an explanation to why you decided to do that and why you also now decide to, to work in Singapore and being more abroad than being in, based in Norway? Yeah, so my first experience abroad, or at least living abroad, uh, was when I moved to Italy, uh, to Bologna. Uh, and this was a, an exchange program. So I had always lived in my hometown of Bergen and never, never tried living anywhere else. And so I kind of figured, you know, this would be a good experience to try something completely different, learn a new language and so on. So I think that sort of red pilled me a bit on like living abroad. And I just found it very, you know, fascinating to try to live in a new culture and try to adapt and like learn the rules uh, of, of a new, of a new uh, culture. And so, you know, from there I went to the UK. So studied at Edinburgh University afterwards. Uh, went back to Norway and then uh, went to Paris for an assignment, worked a bit in Florence and then Barcelona later, Hong Kong and now Singapore. So I've definitely lived many different places. Um, I think it's just more, I, I just find it more fun in a way. Like it's hard to, hard to explain, but uh, the fact that you can deal with people with different backgrounds and cultures is something that's always been fascinating. And also I'm, uh, I'm pretty big on like language learning. I find that fun. And so it's always good to be in a country. If you're trying to learn a language, it's good to be in the country where they speak it. How many languages have you nailed down now that you feel confident, confident speaking? So, I mean, it depends a bit how you count it. Like as a Norwegian, I wouldn't count like Danish and Swedish, for example, but uh, I could get by on maybe six, soon seven languages. Um, so I'm learning Chinese now, which is the hardest one I've, I've tried. <laughs> wow that's yeah. that's fascinating so just like a quick debrief like do you have a special technique in order to learn a language or is it just important yeah. to be in that country as well so no i have i have a few principles uh, that i kind of learned from from mostly italian but then sort of refined them uh with other languages so i actually wrote, wrote a blog post about it when i tried to learn german in 30 days uh which you know obviously you can't get to fluency, like perfect fluency in 30 days, but you can get pretty far. And so there's some principles, like the first one is to consider the statistics of a language. In particular, uh, focus on words that are actually frequent and you can create frequency lists. And it turns out that if you, if you know like the thousand most common words, that often covers like 75 to 80% of all spoken words or written words which is actually pretty surprising to most people. But uh, that means you have to ensure that you're focusing on the right words. Like don't, don't learn random words that you tend to learn in school. Like what's the, what's the Chinese word for pineapple? It's like, you're never going to use it probably maybe once or twice. Right. But what's the Chinese word for like he or it or she or like these different things, which are obviously much more useful. So that's the first part. It's called Zipf's law, actually, this power distribution of, of uh, word frequencies in language. And the second one is to speak from day one. So even if you are super uncomfortable doing it and you sound stupid and you don't know what you're doing, it helps, helps a lot just to get into the habit of speaking and practicing. Uh, and then like immersion, like I, I listen to a lot of music 
and the target language uh, that I'm learning. And like, yeah, there are a few other principles, but those, those are probably the main ones. That's great ones. Uh, let's dive into crypto. I think you said that you obviously you found Bitcoin at first and I don't know if dismissed is, is the right word, but you kind of didn't find it that interesting. Can you just take us yeah. back to that moment? You know, maybe reading the white paper, your initial thoughts and why you weren't you know, hooked at the start, at least. Yeah, I don't think I even got to the point of reading the white paper. I was discussing Bitcoin in like 2013 with some guys at a cafe in Oslo. I remember the moment. And one of the guys was like, my friend has made an insane amount of money on Bitcoin. And I, and I was like, well, it's too late now <laughs> to buy it. And this is 2013. And so I was like, okay, well, you know, this is just a kind of fun tech thing, but like, it's never going to take off, you know, which was obviously completely wrong. Uh, but I didn't find it very interesting because I probably didn't give it a chance. Like it deserved to, to look into it. And then... Four years later, I learned about Ethereum and Ethereum, I found much more like intellectually stimulating. And actually later on, that led me to revisit my views on Bitcoin, which made me also appreciate Bitcoin much more. Um, but definitely Ethereum as like a world computer or a platform where anyone can innovate and anyone can, you know, issue applications was something that I got really fascinated by. And this was like right before the big ICO boom in 2017. So there was like a lot of money to be made as well. And um, in general, you know, crypto tends to combine like the greed and the intellectual stimulus in a, in a pretty interesting way. So that's probably why I got into crypto and Ethereum in the first place. Just the last part, part on Bitcoin. I think you said that you sort of had this maybe idea of maybe it would look similar to sort of like the MySpace analogy, but now you kind mm. of feel like it's it's here to stay. Can you just quickly go through that thought process? Yeah, that's true. So my fear with Bitcoin was always that, okay, this is revolutionary. I get it. But how do you know that this is the, this is the horse that's going to win the race, right? Like what if someone just makes a better Bitcoin and that's the thing that people will adopt? And so actually one reason why I got into Ethereum is, well, this is a platform where people can make other currencies so it's, and like all other applications. So it seems likely that, you know, this winning currency, whatever it will be, could actually be issued on Ethereum, even if it's not Ether itself in theory. So that was actually one of the reasons why I felt more comfortable kind of making a bet on Ethereum. But yeah, so the, the concept with Bitcoin is like, it could be like the MySpace of, of uh, you know, cryptocurrencies in, a, in the same way that MySpace in many ways was a really popular social network. But of course, like who uses MySpace today, right? Like now there's a bunch of other social media sites that have popped up and taken over completely. So why couldn't that happen with Bitcoin uh, as well? I kind of think that that is still a possibility with Bitcoin. So um, especially now that you see so much developer activity on Ethereum, and these are two very different things, right? Like it's, they can completely coexist. But uh, I would say that, you know, if Ethereum becomes more valuable than Bitcoin, then it will have sort of crossed the Rubicon. Like, I'm not sure there's any going back after that. Um, but I, I also think that Bitcoin will always have like a place in internet history, which means it will always have some value. But I'm not sure it's going to be sort of the most bullish scenario that many Bitcoin maximalists believe in. Got you. So talking a bit about Nansen, if you had to sort of 
connect the dots before starting Nansen, what do you think were sort of the most important experiences that led you to found Nansen? Obviously, you need to have the co-founders and maybe the experience and the right network. Can you just like, looking back, what was sort of the scenario that made Nansen possible to, to start? Yeah, so the first observation was that there is an abundance of data in crypto, which made it interesting for me being a data scientist and having you know, an analytics background uh, to work in. So that was like the first observation, which made me want to you know, leave my job at Shibstead uh, in Barcelona and then take the plunge into the crypto industry. Um, then the second thing was that these analytics products were either non-existent or very immature, or they were built for customer segments that weren't crypto native. So for example, there's a company uh, called Chainalysis, which does a lot of on-chain analytics, but it's focused on like law enforcement, tax authorities, and so on. And I felt there should be, you know, really high quality on-chain analytics for the crypto natives, like people who are actually in the arena, who have take who are like the pioneers using all these applications, investing in crypto, they deserve great analytics tools. And so that was basically missing. Um, and then I also had an experience joining another crypto company in Hong Kong. It was my first job in the crypto space. And that, uh, you know, I built out the data team there from scratch. Uh, I was like the second employee at that company. But the company itself failed like miserably and within a year after I joined. So I think there was also a feeling of, hey, this could be done in, in a good way. But honestly, like the founders and the management of that company didn't know how to do it. And I felt like I did know how to do it instead. So there's also a need to kind of like prove that you can build a really great analytics company in the crypto industry. Uh, if you do it the right way. And so I kind of wanted to prove that to myself um, and, pr and probably others that, uh, that I could build a great company. And so one of the guys who ended up becoming uh, my co-founders, uh, Evgeny, I actually hired him to, to that team there uh, before. So that's, that's how I got to know him. And so he came, he came with me. And then also Lars, uh, our third co-founder, um, is, a, is a guy that he's actually based in Oslo. Uh, is an amazing data engineer, great guy. Like we always worked really well together. And so the three of us kind of just got started building this product. Got you. So, I mean, the tagline for Nansen is great. Sort of the separate the signal from the noise. And maybe an easy analogy as well is like all this great analytics platform that is built on the internet, even, even the Google dashboards, the Moz tools, etc. So for people not that familiar to Nansen, how would you like sort of describe the idea and the concept in the easiest way? Yeah, so you need to have senses when you are kind of in, in sort of interacting with the blockchain or using uh, cryptocurrencies, digital assets. So I kind of think of Nansen as like your eyes, right? It's like, you're, you're looking on the blockchain in real time, you're seeing what happens. And many people compare us to like Bloomberg for traditional finance, which is like, if you are a, a serious investor or trader in traditional finance, you need to have a Bloomberg terminal. And we have kind of some of the same, um, you know, features for the crypto space. If you want to do due diligence on a specific token, you can plug in that token into one of our dashboards you get an overview of like who are the top holders of this, you know, the trading volume, 
who's accumulating this token, who's selling it off, what's the liquidity on different exchanges based on like the millions of addresses that we've tagged up and all these different things. So, um, and the same with NFTs. Like if you're doing like an NFT collections and you want to figure out the exact same things, you can get that as well. So, you know, I like to say that there are three main use cases for Nansen. The first one is to discover new opportunities that you might not have uh, known about before. And we surface them in intelligent ways, you know, like the volume that's going into DeFi protocols or the trading volume of NFT collections that can help you lift the more interesting projects to the surface. That's the first use case. The second one is due diligence, which I just talked about, where you look into a specific project and try to learn more about it. And the third is you get real-time notifications when important events happen on the blockchain uh, through Telegrams, Discord, or Slack. So these are the main use cases that um, you know that people employ Namsen for. Um, but yeah, it's become I think a pretty integral product for many people who are active in the crypto space at this point. How hard, if you look at the beginning, how hard was it to engineer a product that people actually fell in love with and basically worked like, okay, this is nice, it's a nice tool, but that they actually really were invested in it? Because maybe that's what separates the best companies is that they actually create a product that people actually love and needs all the time. Yeah. So how was that process? Did you find it like pretty quickly or was it like iteration after iteration? Definitely a lot of iteration, but I think we had two major advantages. The first one was I was a customer of my own product, which made it, you know, it means that you can have a feedback loop on like, I know what's useful because I'm using this product myself. So that was like a huge advantage. I think, you know, building for other personas or customers that you cannot relate to is very hard. It's a massive advantage if you're building for, you're scratching your own itch, you're building for your own persona. That was the first part. The second part is we also had a very tight uh, feedback loop with our early customers. And so I, I was just tweeting about this today. If you have a Discord and you have people in that Discord giving you feedback, telling you what's useful, what they're lacking, it just means that you can iterate very fast and ship features uh, that people want, right? And also they start loving your brand because you're listening to them and you're, like, you're giving them what they need. And so I think that allowed us to build up many kind of strong ambassadors early on and people who just frankly love, love the product. Um, so I think those were the two main things. There's a lot of iteration, certainly. And the product looks totally different today than it did you know, a year ago. Um, and there's still like tons of features that's going to come. But certainly uh, having that feedback loop, either with yourself, but also with customers is super important. Just to emphasize that concept that you just mentioned, the sort of building in public seems very uh, typical for the crypto startups. Can you just also talk a bit about, bit about how unique that feature is in the crypto space versus more the traditional finance space? Yeah. So before I joined crypto, I used to work in like Slack, right? Which I actually liked a lot as a, as a uh, platform, but it's also a silo. So that means... Typically, all your employees are in like one Slack, you know, and they're talking to each other, but there's no direct line to the customer unless you set up these like sort of specific channels, which you can do, but it's not super, uh, not super easy to set that up. Discord is like the same as Slack, except it's permissionless to some extent. Like people can just join your Discord server. And of course, you can, you can sort of wall off some of the private ones if you want. 
but it means like you literally have your customers sitting right next to your team like at all times and that means that you can tighten up that feedback loop that i was just talking about and so uh we also do like youtube live youtube streams where we have our customers tune in every week and i think these things have and and we've been you know not so scared of showing off like unfinished work and stuff that's in progress or bugs or whatever so when we're doing live youtube streams we'll often find stuff and we say hey this is actually not very user friendly like we should change it and then next session hopefully we will have fixed it so i think this is quite unique to crypto companies because many of us have adopted discord and although discord sounds like it's just another product it's just another tool it's actually a super different philosophy than having this like siloed approach where you ha just have like your emails or your, I don't know, Microsoft Teams or Slack as like a silo. Discord is like you blur the line between who is actually an employee and who is like a customer or a contributor to your project, which I think is a very typical crypto mindset. And so I think, you know, that's a huge advantage for these product products over time because you have that feedback loop and you ensure that you're uh, responding to whatever the community actually wants. Super interesting. And also, if you look at a Twitter, for instance, how did you personally manage to, to grow the Twitter, your own Twitter, and how important was it as a sales channel as well? Yeah, so Twitter is by far the most important marketing channel we have. I don't really think of it as a marketing channel as such, but... If we just look at where people come from when they sign up, that's that's by far the biggest channel. The benefit of that is that we own that channel, right? So we don't have to pay every time we post a tweet, which is quite nice because it drives our organic traffic. The second biggest channel is word of mouth, which uh, is kind of related, but it's also an organic channel. So we don't really kind of buy much uh, traffic at all. Like it's pretty much all organic. Uh, so how how did I grow my personal Twitter? Mostly by posting screenshots from Nansen and then occasionally shit posting, meaning I, I just, uh, you know, put out whatever's on my mind uh, with very little filter. And I think uh, <laughs> we've had job applicants at Nansen uh, say that they, one of the reasons they applied for a job at Nansen is because of my shit posts, which was, uh, which was kind of uh, hilarious. Um, but I think that's, that's the main strategy I've used. Like I haven't really focused on, Hey, I want to grow this to X thousand followers. It's just kind of organically grown based on stuff I wanted to share from Nansen and then random stuff that falls into my head. Got you. Or we can translate, you know, shit posting to authenticity, maybe. Could be also <laughs> a good way to yeah. do it. <laughs> yeah, probably. I mean, like, I, I do think that, you know, because we have done this building in public and doing YouTube streams with an unfinished product, it sort of helps the authenticity and we're not really like a corporate brand or anything like that. So yeah, we, we, we strive to have like a certain amount of authenticity with our brand. If we look at the crypto landscape and obviously you think about data all the time, what is sort of the hardest data to really wrap your head around? I know like one case you talked about a bit is, you know, sort of it's harder to to interpret the Coinbase data, et cetera, but like maybe on, on a more general view, what's the hardest data to really get your mind around? Yeah, I mean, I, there are a few different things there. From from like uh, the perspective of us, of us building this uh, product, I would say the hardest part is probably trying to come up with like an architecture and and processes for labeling addresses. That's like the main 
the main data asset that we have that like no one else has. And so we have more than 100 million addresses tagged up and there's no silver bullet for how you do this. You just have to create sort of abstract processes that are useful in terms of surfacing what address we allocate resources towards to analyze, but also like figuring out, you know, measuring our own coverage of how many addresses we tag. Um, and then and then finding scalable ways to tag with high precision, right? Because you definitely don't want to put any wrong labels out there. Um, so, so I think that's the hardest thing we do. It's also not so, I think it's harder than people realize to just work with the transactional data, which is actually in theory open to anyone, but you have to do a lot of work to like process it and like pull out the right things from transactions. So, you know, Ethereum is a smart contract platform. And so you can effectively make any type of application. And so that means when you want to read out the data from like the logs, there's a lot of stuff you need to do, which is non-trivial. Like, how do you recognize what is like people selling tokens into a decentralized exchange versus providing liquidity? And how do you do that across like 20 or 30 different types of decentralized exchanges, right? And like create a harmon like a harmonized data layer, which you know, where you can compare the volume and all that stuff. There's a lot of work that goes into that too. Uh, it's probably not as hard as like the labeling piece, but it's also a significant challenge that you need a lot of domain knowledge and data skills to do properly. That brings me over to the next subject, which is the trade-off between privacy and transparency. I know mm. that you, you think about this quite a lot and I know it's it's not black and white. It's sort of on a spectrum. It's very hard to to find the perfect place or the perfect angle, but just maybe use a couple of minutes to explain why it is important for you as a company to get that balance right and also how you think about that. Yeah, so blockchains are quite unique because you can introspect transactions. So everything you do on Bitcoin or uh, Ethereum, people can see in, in real time. Uh, of course, the thing is they can't necessarily see that you own a specific address, so they don't necessarily know that you made this transaction, but everyone can see the transaction itself. Of course, with our service, because we are, you know, enriching the address data with entity connections and behavioral labels, very quickly you get into a situation where, you know, people's transactions become a lot more public. You know, they were always public, but now you can also understand which entities own which addresses. So it's important for us to be mindful of the privacy implications of that. So as a company, we don't, for example, we, we there's a huge distinction between individual addresses and like corporate uh, or project addresses, right? So uh, if an individual came to us and they said, hey, you know, you've labeled my address um, and we will have done that because it was already in the public domain, you, I want you to remove that we would have to comply like just from privacy regulations, right? That's how it works. Um, but if a corporation comes to us and they're like, we want you to remove, well, this is akin to a journalist writing a critical piece about this corporation. Like, why should we remove it? You know, they don't have the same rights to privacy as individuals do. So you have to draw a big distinction between those two things. And then of course, the other thing is, as you pointed out, you know, privacy and transparency are kind of, two sides of the same coin. And so you can be sort of glass half full or you can be glass half empty, where I think the transparency of blockchains is actually one of the key selling points. 
the fact that you can audit any DeFi protocol in real time is amazing. Like that, that's one of the key benefits of blockchains, in my uh, opinion. And so you want to sort of lift up the transparency aspects of, of blockchains and make those, um, you know, m- make that aspect very uh, useful for blockchains. And there was another case very recently where uh, a, an early stage VC firm was kind of caught um, selling tokens early that they had farmed from, from this early stage uh, DeFi protocol. And the only reason they got caught is because of the transparency, right? And so this to me is like, it's a positive thing because it, it allows you to focus on certain bad aspects of, of what happens um, in, the, in the blockchain space. So I, I try to focus on like, what are all the good things we can do because of transparency, but we have to be mindful of the privacy aspects as well. Makes sense. So looking at Nansen again, I know that you at one point thought maybe you could just bootstrap the company because you had customers paying very early. You could sort of wrap it up and scale it up, but uh, you sort of ended up pitching Andreessen Horowitz. You pitched Ben Horowitz. You got Chris Dixon on board. Can you take uh, talk about the process where you decided to to really fund it and to scale it super fast and going the VC route versus bootstrapping? Yeah, I think for us, you know, I always admired companies that bootstrapped completely. At the same time, I also realized there's a bit of like a vanity approach or a vanity aspect of it as well, where it's like, oh, amazing, you're able to bootstrap. But what is actually best for the company? Like, how do you, how do you ensure success of your company? And how do you ensure that employees who you know, are early stage contributors can maximize the, their net worth because they have equity and so on? Uh, and it seemed obvious to me that if we raise money, number one, you have capital, which means you secure the next, say, two years of your company. That means you can make commitments to your employees, like you're going to have a job one, one and a half years from now, uh, even if it's going to be a rough market. So securing the runway for employees was definitely a big factor. Uh, so we could make these commitments. And the other thing you get is you get um, expertise and network from these venture capital firms and angel investors. And that has been extremely valuable to us. So even if you set aside the capital, which by the way, we haven't touched, right? So like in theory, we, we didn't need to raise, but at the same time, I'm pretty sure that a lot of our growth has come because we've gotten help and exposure uh, from from these VC firms uh, and angel investors who have been a part of this journey. So I think, you know, it went from being this cool idea of bootstrapping to thinking, hey, I'm not sure this is the best path that ensures highest probability of success for a company. And that was a bit of a mindset shift for me. And then also just the speed, like you can ramp up much faster if you have capital because you can make these bigger bets. So, yeah, so that those are some of the reasons. And for people that aren't familiar with the story, it's pretty unique that in this case, Andreessen Horowitz actually was a customer for you as well. That's right. Yeah. So they liked the product. So it wasn't too hard to sell them on, on that part. Uh, of course, as VCs, they always want to know what's the total addressable market, right? Or TAM, what's the moat you have as a business or as a project. So these things we discussed and like, what's the, you know, can you get product market fit beyond just like the VCs and so on? And I think after the seed round, we were able to demonstrate that, hey, we're growing super fast. People love our product. Uh, and, you know, they saw the same thing in 
and thought we could be the category leader for, for information in the crypto space. So that's why they decided to back us in, in the end. Makes sense. So just a couple more questions before we wrap up. But you had this great quote that nobody likes sitting at home talking about finance. And that was in relation to the NFT boom. So can you sort of like give us your perspective on NFTs and why I think it will be much bigger than the whole DeFi space? Yeah, so I like to say that DeFi has brought the capital and NFTs bring the people into crypto. And the reason is, you know, as you pointed out, people don't give a shit about finance, broadly speaking, right? Like normal people. But they do care about entertainment, music, gaming, arts, and NFTs are the best way that you can get these things into the crypto world. And so I think the design space and kind of use cases for NFTs is enormous. And we've just scratched the surface of this. I was uh, two weeks ago, I was in New York for, for a conference. And it's super clear that the cult world of culture in, in New York, so like arts, entertainment, music, all that stuff is really colliding with the world of crypto through NFTs. You can like literally see it with the people, like people going to the same parties who would never do that like a few years ago. Uh, and, and it's super interesting seeing like crypto folks like in the same parties as like, you know, art collectors and, and things like that. So, so I think that's the main thing. Like NFTs, just they are the natural interface to a lot of these different areas that people care a lot about. Um, so I think I think I tend to say NFTs are like totally underrated. Although many people think we're kind of in an NFT bubble, and you know it's probably going to go up and down. But I definitely think five, ten years from now, NFTs are going to be way bigger than they are today. Couldn't agree more. If we look at the crypto industry as a whole. Uh... What do you think is some of, sort of the some of the hardest questions to answer to really understand where the industry is going forward? That's a tough one. I do think that there's a lot of work to be done on just the kind of business models for different protocols. And so by business models, I mean like tokenomics and things like that, which many people were excited about in 2017. Then they were very disillusioned in 2018 and 19. And then I think with DeFi protocols, uh, we sort of revived the enthusiasm. But I still think there's a lot of work to be done where you figure out like how can you um, sustainably, uh, you know, grow these DeFi protocols, these different projects in a way such that um, such that the project has a high chance of success and it's around like 50 years from now. That's that's like still a pretty much an open question and we don't have like a lot of standards on best practices i think the cool thing about axie infinity in in the nft space is that they actually have pioneered what looks like a, a very holistic tokenomics system where it's like you you can actually imagine games trying to replicate like with different games but using the same tokenomics principles and so i think that's pretty cool. And I think you're going to have sort of these kind of best practice frameworks for different types of projects. So that, that's, you know, that's a very important part, which there still needs to be innovation and experimentation. Maybe the other part is like, how do you get decentralized projects to actually, you know, achieve their fullest potential? Because how do you avoid things like voter apathy, you know, where people don't really bother to do anything they can just like free ride off of you know their 
crypto tokens becoming more and more valuable without them doing anything. Uh, so I think the whole like DAO and decentralized governance and things like that is also totally not solved. And like you need to experiment a lot more and collect experiences. So the last question, if you look at the Nansen roadmap, I think you said that it's basically going from analytics to social to transactions. Can you give like, just to end it up, like the roadmap ahead for Nansen, what are you most exciting about building and how does the future look? Yeah, the interesting thing about the crypto industry is that it is extremely hard to imagine where it is like five, definitely 10 years from now. So I, I personally don't believe in having like a, rock solid kind of Elon Musk style master plan for the next 10 years. It makes sense if your environment is like physics, <laughs> like SpaceX and Tesla, you know, like those are your constraints. It's like physics. Okay. You can like think about that. We are a company that aims to um, support a whole crypto industry, which constantly evolves. It's literally the fastest moving industry on earth. So it's really hard to say exactly like what does the roadmap look like for Nansen for the next 10 years. But it seems obvious, you know, a few things uh, seem obvious. Um, there's not really any good native communication channels in, in crypto. So I think that's like a very compelling area for us to explore a bit. Drawing the analogy with like Bloomberg again, they have instant Bloomberg. Messaging is a huge part of like the Bloomberg terminal and, and the product. So certainly that's an area where I want to experiment at the very least. Um, and then, yeah, transactional as well. The, the cool thing about Nansen compared to something like Bloomberg is that it's not actually that hard to build in transactional features into our product. So if you wanted to just buy tokens or put uh, funds into some smart contract or uh, yield farm or maybe even do over-the-counter uh, trades, OTC trades with other investors, you could do that in our user interface, right? That doesn't work in Bloomberg because you have to go back to your settlement teams and all that stuff. But it, we could just tap into the blockchain and use something like 0x on the back the back end. So it seems like obviously that's something that would be useful uh, for our users. So that's what I mean when I talk about social and transactional. But I also don't want us to lose focus on the analytics use case, which is an information, which is like our bread and butter today. And there's tons of work to be done in that area. So, yeah, but, you know, we want to be the category leader for information in crypto. And information is kind of a broad thing, which includes, I think, um, you know, social networks and so on as well. So those are at least some high level thoughts. Perfect ending, Alex. Thank you so much for joining. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Hi, everyone. Christopher here again. Just a few things before you leave the show. If you like this episode, it would be great if you could give it a review and also share it with your professional network. If you want to get in touch with me, Twitter is the place. Just go to at Chris Wunheim. You can also find this information in the show notes. Hope to see you tune in to the next episode and take care. <laughs>